find the book of Haggai in your Bible this morning. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 1,281. If you don't have a Bible like mine, you'll have to look in the table of contents, find out what page is on in your Bible. <laughs> it's right after Zephaniah. That helps you, any <laughs> Old Testament book of Haggai. Haggai means feast of God, feast of Yahweh. Um, he may have been born on a festival day, but he's one of three prophets who appear post-exile after the Babylonian captivity. And uh, his message is very important. So we'll get to the first 11 verses of chapter 1 just a minute. Ever ask yourself or your spouse or whoever it is you talk to in your house, where did all our money go? You ever find yourself getting to the end of the month and you got more months than you got money? What in the world has happened here? It's very easy for our expenditures to fall outside the boundaries of our earnings and how easily inflation attacks our savings. 500 years before the birth of Christ, you had another culture who experienced this same kind of struggle. They faced an inflation that would stagger the imagination of modern economists, the People earned reasonable wages, but before they could turn around, it was all spent. And so the prophet is going to say that it, it, it appears it is as though people had holes in their pockets because it just seems like the money goes right through their hands and they've got nothing to show for it. And so that's what he's going to talk about in these first 11 verses. Let's stand together in honor and reverence the reading of God's inspired, infallible, and errant word. It's Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sworn much, you bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink, but, do, but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and on the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands." 
Father, I pray now that you would uh, speak through your word by your spirit to our hearts, that believers may be encouraged, and that we all may be drawn closer to you. Those who do not know you may come to understand that you are God alone, and that uh, you are on the throne. All that we have belongs to you, and therefore we are responsible for what we do with it. We pray we'll be good stewards of those things that are entrusted to our care. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Jews at this time in history are trying to resettle Jerusalem. But for some reason, they just couldn't seem to keep ahead of their money. So the prophet uses this economic situation as a basis for reminding them of their responsibilities. In verse 9, look at what it says. He says to them, You looked for much, but indeed it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why in the world would God make sure that they didn't have any money? Why would he say to them, you brought it all home, you're making a living, you're doing your thing, and you brought it home, and I blew it away? Well, he tells you at the end of verse 9 why he did it. He says, I did it because of my house <clears throat> that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. C.S. Lewis, in that wonderful book, Screwtape Letters, if you've never read that, y'all read it, depicts a fellow by the name of Screwtape, and that is the devil, and he's giving advice to his nephew. Nephew's name is Wormwood, and uh, Wormwood is the recruiter. He's the, he goes out, he's the recruiter from hell, and he's working on earth, and here's the advice that the devil gives to his recruiter, on getting people to serve the devil. He says, the church is a fertile field if you just keep them bickering over details, structure, organization, money, property, personal hurts, and misunderstandings. One thing you must prevent, don't ever let them look up and see the banners flying, for if they ever see the banners flying, you have lost them forever. Keep them bickering. Over what? Most often, little things that don't mean anything. Little things that become exaggerated. For example, over in the mountains, not far from where we're standing right now, uh, there's a little church with a sign out front uh, noting that the name of this church is Left Foot Baptist Church. It got that name years ago when they practiced foot washing. A great debate erupted in that church over whether or not you ought, to write, you ought to wash the right foot first or the left foot first. The people split. They went out and formed their own church. They named it based upon their preferred foot, left foot Baptist church. When you are looking at feet, when you're looking at feet, it's hard to see the banners flying. 1917, the bishops of the Church of Russia held an eventful meeting that resulted in a very heated debate. Just down the street from where they were meeting, there was a group of a small struggling party of Bolsheviks who were plotting 
what would become an effective and bloody revolution to overthrow the Tsar of Russia. They carried it out. They established their new party. It was known as the Communist Party. It still exists to this day. Oh, by the way, do you know what the bishops were debating about? Do you know what they were debating in the church? Very serious theological issue was dividing the church. They couldn't decide whether they ought to use 18-inch candles or 22-inch candles when you're looking at candles. It's hard to see the banners flying. Let's get a little background on this book so you can understand the problem. 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar invaded and overthrew Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem and the temple of God were destroyed. God's people were taken into Babylon as captives, and they remained there for 70 years. Later on, a man by the name of Cyrus of the Persians, he comes in, he defeated Babylon, he brings the Babylonian Empire to an end, and he allowed the Jews to go back to their homeland in order that they might rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Among those who returned, the exiles who returned, was a prophet by the name of Zechariah and a prophet by the name of Haggai. About 18 years goes by between the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of the temple. And the, de the delay is what brings about this book. So the question that comes from Haggai's message in chapter 1 is very clear. How committed are you? How committed are you and I to the work of God here at Valley Grove Baptist Church? Are you more concerned about the work of the kingdom? Or would you rather concern yourself with structure and organization and programs and nostalgia? The way things used to be. If you read the prophet Zechariah, what you find is a very encouraging message to the people. And they're told, keep working on the project. Keep rebuilding the temple of God. Even though the resources are scarce, remember in the end, this is God's work. God is with you. He will provide what you need. Keep building. Haggai writes about the very same issue, rebuilding the temple, but he comes at it from an entirely different perspective. He says that the success or failure of this project is dependent not only on the power of God, but it's dependent on the willingness of the people to do what God tells them to do. Whether or not we're going to be obedient, the commitment to the task. Like any big building project, it was a huge task. First, there was remarkable enthusiasm. People cleared the rubbish, they cleaned the site, they built a foundation for the altar. The Bible says that before any actual building began, the people took the altar of God and they put it back in the central place where it had been. No walls, no foundations, no outer walls, but the altar was in place. And at that point, Ezra tells the people, or tells us in his book, that the people got so excited about what was going on, they began to sing. They began to dance. They began to praise God because their central place of worship had been restored. You see, all they were concerned about was not rebuilding the temple. It was just making sure they had the altar because there was nostalgia connected to it. 
They just remembered the altar. This is the place where I did this and went here and done. And I, and I want to make sure the altar is here. And so they stopped building the temple because they had accomplished what they thought they wanted to accomplish. The altar was back. Some opposition arose. And the Jews grabbed on to excuses to, in order to stop building. You may think that you've heard some burning sermons in your day, but you've never heard anything like Haggai's preaching. He said everything that needed to be said. He confronted the people for refusing to do what God would have them to do. And so there are three things that he mentions that I want you to see this morning. And the first thing is I want you to see the excuse that they gave. Look at verse 2. Here's the excuse the people give. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says, the time is not right. The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. They just decided it wasn't time. One time to rebuild the temple. It wasn't, wasn't that it was a bad idea. But their attitude was, we'll do it one day. Someday we'll get this done. We'll try and do it, but not right now. This is not a good time for us. It, 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 listen, it's fine. We've got the altar. It's fine for us. We don't really need anything else. Uh, we'll let somebody else worry about it down the road. According to Haggai, the harvest time was upon them, and times were hard. They all wanted to go back to their fields and harvest their crop. They didn't have time to do what God wanted them to do, so they responded that the time wasn't right. How many projects has God directed us to complete and we have continually postponed it because we decided that the time wasn't right? We're always looking for a convenient way out of obeying God, and one of the easiest excuses is procrastination. Not now. Nothing wrong with what we've got. There's not, it's not necessary. It's just not a good time. I've heard that excuse when it comes to tithing. People mean to do it. They say things like, well, one of these days I plan to start tithing, but not right now. Now's not a good time for me. I got to pay some bills. I got to get some things in order. But listen, whenever you give an excuse to God, all you're doing is being disobedient. All it is. Any excuse, when God tells us to do something and we come up with excuses why we can't or why it's not the right time or why any number of excuses, whatever the excuse is, all we're doing is we're being disobedient. You know it's the right thing to do, but you just don't do it. Notice also this prophecy begins in an interesting way that people don't normally notice. In verse 2, God refers to Israel as this people. Look at verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, say, this people says. That's interesting. In the past, whenever I read in the Old Testament, God always refers to Israel how? My people. These are my people. This time, he says, this people. There's a distance. There's something going on between the people and God. You see, the problem is not always the problem. 
You got to dig a little deeper before you can find the, the problem wasn't that they, wa that they weren't building the temple fast enough. The problem was that there was a spiritual issue that needed to be dealt with. And these people were far away from God. They can't rebuild the temple because they've got so much to do to get their own house fixed up. My business is struggling. I've got to put all my energy into taking care of my kids and my grandkids and, and all the things that are going on in my life. There's a modern ring to that in these verses, don't you think? Why is it that we feel like we can offer excuses when it comes to the things of the church that would be ridiculous if we tried to offer them anywhere else? I heard a story about a group of GIs on furlough that I think illustrates this point. It seems the commanding officer was furious because nine GIs who'd been out on passes failed to show up for morning roll call. First one of them didn't show up until 7 p.m. He straggled in, and he met the commanding officer. He said, I'm sorry, sir, but I had a date last night, and I lost track of time. I missed the bus back. He said, but I was trying to get here on time, so I hired me a cab. But halfway here, the cab broke down. Well, there was a farmhouse not far from where the cab broke down, so I ran up to the farmhouse, and I got the guy to sell me a horse. And I jumped on that horse, and I started riding, but you know what? That horse dropped dead. And I have walked the last 10 miles, and it took me that long to get here. Well, the colonel was a little skeptical of that story, but he let the man off with a reprimand. However, after him, seven other stragglers came in in a row with exactly the same story. They had a date, they missed the bus, they hired a cab, they bought a horse, the horse died. All of a sudden, the ninth guy comes in. He's late. Colonel meets him, he's ready for him. He says, all right, what happened to you? He said, well, I had a date and I missed the bus coming back, so I hired a cab. Colonel said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't tell me. The cab broke down. Guy said, no, sir. Cab didn't break down at all. But all them dead horses in the road kept me from getting here. You see, when you offer excuses, it doesn't matter what kind of excuse you offer because anyone is good enough in your own mind. Excuses never work. Here's the second thing. Once the Lord points out the excuse, he then turns to the exhortation. The prophet noticed something about these people. Here's what he noticed. He said, you've got time to build your own houses, but you don't have time to build the house of God. In fact, you're not just building plain houses. You see, this was a hard time economically for people, but they weren't building just plain houses. They were building some pretty fancy homes for their time. He uses a phrase. He says, you go back to your paneled houses. This is not a phrase from the 1970s when paneling was a big deal. But back in Bible times, paneling was a big deal. That just meant that these homes had wooden beams. They had been built with wooden beams. Well, wood was in hard, a hard supply. You couldn't find anything. Um, uh, it was uncommon in Judah at this time for somebody to have a house that would have been considered paneled, wood beams inside. Timber was not plentiful. So it is quite possible 
that the people were taking the timber that they gathered in and rather than using it to build the house of God, they directed it to build their own houses. In other words, we're going to do what we want to do. And the actions of these people reveal the attitude of their heart. Their worship was confined to a bare minimum. They were completely satisfied that they had the altar. We put the altar back. So why isn't that good enough? They had an altar in a bare field. They weren't thinking at all about how they were going to reach their nation for God. They weren't thinking at all about the kind of impact that they were going to have over the next 20 to 50 years. They were thinking about what's going to happen to me today. I'll let somebody else deal with this problem. We've got the altar. That's all we need. And so they would come together. They came from their nice houses. They would gather around the altar, and they would tell themselves stories of how, nostalgic stories of how things used to be and how wonderful it was. And look, we've got this altar, and it's wonderful. So Haggai not only reminds them of their forgetful attitude, but then he says to them in verse 5, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sworn much, you bring in little. In other words, you talk a good game. But when it comes time to actually doing what you're supposed to do, you're not doing it. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Here's something I want us to come to realize. If we will trust God, the things that look impossible become possible. You're unusually quiet. Not even shuffling feet. Do you hear what I said? If you will trust God, the things that seem impossible become possible. But when you hold out on God because you think we can't, you will never experience the blessing of God. One old black preacher said it this way, when God gets his and I get mine, then everything is just fine. But if I get mine and I take God's too, what do you think God will do? I think he'll collect, don't you? When God gets his and I get mine, everything is fine. But when I take mine and I take what belongs to God too, God's going to collect. And he's going to get his one way or the other. Haggai said to the people, if you think you can take what belongs to God and you think you can redirect it to yourselves, you're fooling yourselves. Twice in these 11 verses, just this little sermon, he says to the people, stop what you're doing and think about your ways. Consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. You need to get your priorities in order. Listen. I've learned as a pastor, I can't really do anything to change a person's giving habits. I can't do anything to make people see 
what I believe God wants us to do. I just have to be faithful in proclaiming the message and then trust the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of the people. And I realize life's about choices. And you're an individual. You're going to make your own choices. All I can do is challenge you to do what Haggai said. Consider your ways. Life is moving quickly. And I think the thing that we need to consider as a church family is what is it that we are leaving for the next generation? What are we leaving for our children? What are we leaving for our grandchildren? Are we satisfied to just have an altar and say, look, we've got the altar. Let them figure it out when they come along and they'll have to do the rest of the work. What are we leaving to those? What are we doing to reach our field for Christ? Too often we're just concerned with our own comfort. We're just too concerned with our own preferences. Notice what the prophet says after he tells the people to consider their ways. Look at verse 8. Go to the mountain. Bring wood, build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. In other words, God does not expect you and me to just sit around and think about it forever. He doesn't expect us to consider our ways forever. He wants us to take action. He wants us to do something. If a person knows what is right, then he ought to do it. If you know what you're supposed to do, then you just ought to do it. You don't have to sit around and think about it. And we've talked about that before. Do you, I, uh, people say, well, pastor, pray for me. I've got a coworker who's lost, and I'm praying whether or not God wants me to witness to him. I'm not praying about that. I'm not praying about that. Because we already have the answer. He wants you to witness to your lost co-worker. You don't have to pray and say, Lord, do you really want me to tell him about Jesus? Of course he does. Tithing. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. It's as clear as it can be. Black, right, no white paper. Lord, I need to pray about this. Do you really mean for me to tithe? There are two subjects that I have discovered create the most comments in 40 years of preaching one is when you preach a series on giving uh two is when you preach a series on marriage guess what i'm starting next week <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Um, when you know what you ought to do the bible says then do it just do it make a commitment Determine the plan and then obey the Lord. So Haggai shows us the excuse. He shows us the exhortation. And then let's leave with a little encouragement. How about that? Look down at verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you. 
So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. That's a good ending to the sermon. He calls out the people for what they're, they're not doing. He confronts them with their sin and with their disobedience to God. And then he closes it by giving them this word of encouragement. Here's what you need to remember. No matter how bad you think things are, no matter how much you think we can't, no matter how much you think you can't, God is always with you. He's always with you. And he always responds when we take action. His presence is always available to us. And when we start to wonder, I don't know, Lord, how are we going to ever be able to start? I don't know how we're going to be able to start tithing. His presence is there to offer you encouragement. Lord is with us. He will help us if we are obedient to him. Not only do we have his presence, we have his power. We have the presence of the Lord. I am with you always. Well, that's enough. But God says there's more. Not only do you have my presence, you have my power. Haggai says the Lord stirred up his people to get them to fulfill their commitment to rebuild the temple. God gave them enthusiasm. God gave them excitement to do what they had committed themselves to do. There's an idea today, wrong, of, of course, but there's an idea today that the pastor is responsible for revving up the troops. That is the pastor's job. You got to cast a big vision. You got to do this thing. You got to do that thing. No, I just, I'm just here to proclaim what the Lord says. You know who stirs up the hearts of people? The Holy Spirit of God. I put on a dog and pony show every week. I can dance a little, sing a little, play a little, preach a little. Whatever you need me to do, I can do it. And you know what? We'll walk out of here, and unfortunately, people will say, that was good singing, that was good playing, that was good preaching. And nothing will happen. But when God begins to stir in the hearts of people, things begin to happen that cannot be explained by the pastor. You see, it's not my job to rev you up. My job to simply say to you, thus saith the Lord. And he says, you have my presence. If you're a believer, you have my presence. And you have my power. I've learned that so many times people say, well, I just don't feel like it. I just don't feel like I can do this. I don't feel like we can complete this project. I don't, I've learned feelings normally follow action. We try to put the cart before the horse. We want the feeling before we do anything. Well, if I feel like we can do it, if I feel like I can tithe, I'll do that. If I feel like I can do whatever it is God wants me to do, then I'll do that. No, 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 no. Instead of waiting for my feelings to come along and then be obedient, if I will obey, the feeling will follow. Go back to when Joshua had to take the people over the uh, Jordan River. You remember? And uh, the, the Bible says, I'm, the God said, I want you to go across the Jordan River. They got there and the water's still flowing. When did the water stop flowing? As soon as they took one step into the Jordan. 
when they put their foot in the Jordan, the water stopped. It, it, it rose up on both sides, and they crossed on over on dry land. But they could not wait. Uh, you know, you get there, and you look at it, and you say, I just don't feel like we can cross over here. I don't feel like we can do this. I don't feel like I can do this. I don't feel like this is a... I, you got to take a step of faith. There comes a point when we must take a step of faith. And if we will obey, the Lord will stir up our feelings. If I waited for my feelings, there's a whole lot of things that would never get done. So if you're worried today about whether you can do what the Lord asks you to do, I want you to go back and underline verse 13. The Lord's message to the people was, I am with you. I'm with you. So take God at his word. Do you believe he's with us or not? He either is or he's not. He's either telling the truth or he's not. So when God says, I am with you, he means it. Haggai's message is not a sermon that is lost in some obscure book of the Old Testament. It is a message that comes through the whole of Scripture. When you read Genesis to Revelation, our priority must be put God first in our lives, put God first in our church, and if we do that, He will look after us. It is not that we give God the scraps of our lives. We give God what's left over. He wants all of us. He wants every bit of us. He wants everything I am. He wants everything I have. And he says, when you give that to me, you'll see what I can do.